Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie taking you back on the action from Magni Corps. And it really was an action-packed weekend, but it was also a drenched weekend. We were pretty much soaked all the way through the weekend. It was a time when we saw lots of different results through the races. We've seen the championship go down to the last round in Estoril in a couple of weeks' time. And plenty more news from in and around the paddock about the rider market. But Gordo, what was your big takeaway from Magni Corps? I think the biggest thing is that we actually will go the final round now. Nothing is quite decided yet. It's 99.9% uh, going to be Jonathan's championship. But it didn't get done at Magna Cour, which he's done, I think, the last three years in a row. Um, it's important for the championship, I think. The status of it, everything to have that finale, new racetrack. Um, it's, it's a, to me, that's that's more important for the future than it looks now that we actually got to the end of a short championship uh, that Jonathan has been, you know, clearly dominating for most of the time. But we're still going to go to the final round with a new guy in the championship. Whereabouts in the world are you now, Gordo? I am in Reims in France, having got completely soaking wet riding a bike from uh, Magnicour yesterday. I haven't been that wet for a while. So yeah. I know how the riders felt in some of the races at the weekend because I had a, a much, much slower but similar experience uh, yesterday. It seems like it's pretty much just rained all over France. Obviously, Le Mans this weekend for MotoGP, it looks like it's going to be hit by rain. And like the weather we had last weekend was unlike anything I can remember. I can't actually remember any fully wet weekend. And I was chatting to a few of the riders about it, and all of them said the same. They couldn't remember any weekend where it was just rain all the way through. Yeah, I mean, all different degrees of how wet the track was. But, I mean, it was sometimes epically wet. Uh, and sometimes, like the final race, it was, you know, getting towards damp to not dry. The lap times were still well off. But that actually determined the final outcome of that race, um, the track condition. But yes, wet every session all the time. It was, I mean, very miserable for working conditions for everybody. But it was actually, I think it actually contributed to the fact that we're going to go to the final round. So it's also had a positive effect. It, it introduced that question mark. I think if we had three dry races, we'd be all wrapped up. Um, because I don't think Johnny would have had a off podium ride, you know. Um, so yeah, it was the, the the conditions were pretty brutal, has to be said. Well, let's get straight into it then, Gordo, and talk about the conditions and the track surface because we had a brand new recently resurfaced track at Magni Corps. It's only been done in the middle of the summer. So this was the first chance for all the riders to get out and check it out. This was the first time where we were able to see what it was like. And it was interesting for me when I was talking to Alex Lowe's on Saturday after the race, and he was saying that one of the big things for him was it was actually a fun track to dry in the wet, uh, to ride in the wet for a change, just because the grip is so much better now than what it had been in the past. Yeah, he actually said that it took him a whole session to realise that he hadn't actually had a single slide. Um, see, which is unusual at Magnicur because this track surface was very, very different. The seconds a lot faster, even in full wet conditions. Um, and they've done a generally good job. There was a couple of places that maybe Chaz, for example, thought that maybe it was uh, car racing had been done or car testing had been done and it had put a lot of rubber into the, 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 the gaps between all the little grains of asphalt. Um, and one corner in particular, they're breaking into, I think, was it five? I can't remember if it was five or seven. But one of the heavy braking areas, you saw a lot of riders going on the inside to not go out on the racing line where the cars would have been braking. And um, we saw a few funny crashes in places where people weren't expecting it. But in general, it was a tremendous job. They've done really well. There's still some bumps. Uh, but even undulations that were there before have been taken out um, and I think everybody was 100% positive about the change. And you, you need to have good grip characteristics of a track from the start. You know, they do have a life. They get worn out. They get polished up. And they do need a new surface every now and again. This one seems to have been one of the more successful resurfaces. Yeah, it was down in towards five where, as you said, Gordo, we saw lots of riders trying different lines. It was interesting during the practice sessions, they all held that middle line or even yes. over to the right-hand side because once they went across the crown of the road, that's where we saw lots of crashes. Tom Sykes had a big crash. Caracasulo went down there as well. Lots of riders ran off. But it was interesting that once we got into the races that we saw lots of riders just try and run around the outside so as long as they weren't on the crown of the road there was still good grip around that out outside line so it was interesting to see how riders were trying to attack around this weekend 
Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about it is, uh, and it, it gave us a lot of food for thought because of the changing grip through the races, um, that's actually the number one thing that a rider uses in his arsenal. How much grip do I have? Front, back, middle of the corner, exit in the corner, going into the corner. How much grip is the track giving me now is kind of what their job description is. Because once they know, they can open the throttle or apply the brakes or every other input they've got a certain way. So finding the grip, maintaining the grip for 20-odd laps is actually the number one thing in any rider's job description. Um, and it constantly changed the weekend. So you saw people getting caught out because obviously they're racing. They're not riding around, they're racing around. Um, so they are trying to push it all the time. They're taking it to the maximum of the grip available because the rider who uses the grip to the best is the one that's going to win, especially in those conditions. And let's talk about the riders that did do the winning this weekend. We saw Jonathan Ray pick up two wins, Scott Redding pick up a win in race two. So like you said earlier, the championship goes down to the wire. It really has been about those two guys all the way through the season in terms of that outright title fight. Uh, ultimately, it's been a two-rider fight for the title. Um, I think we expected a bit more after the great start that Scott had in Australia, three podiums in amongst a, a million riders fighting for them. Um, I think we expected a little more in a lot of the other races. They certainly delivered at Hareth. But the places, that, the interesting thing for this season, I think, looking back in 20 years' time, is that the expected results didn't happen. Uh, Aragon actually turned out a much better race for John, two races for Jonathan than it did for, uh, for Scott. Um, we expected that to be a red track for all the riders, and it, it kind of wasn't. Um, so we ended up with a slightly different dynamic. I think that's the reason why we've ended up nearly completing the championship one round early, uh, is because I think we thought everybody would be closer coming into Magna Cour. Those two top guys would be closer coming into Magna Cour, and it didn't transpire. Um, but it's been a great, you know, it's been great to have Scott here. It's a new rider to the championship. Very different uh, from Bautista last year, who completely dominated and then fell apart. Scott's been a little bit more consistent, but the overall package, whether it's the rider, the bike or both, hasn't been consistent enough to challenge Jonathan. And as we know from previous years, you have to be perfect in your own setup before you can even think about being close to Jonathan, because you know he's just going to be on every single podium and win every single race possible. He has to have something going wrong to not be. So that's been an interesting dynamic. This season hasn't quite turned out the way we thought. And that's always interesting. Yeah, and I think it's been interesting as well when you look at it over the last few rounds. Like you mentioned there about Scott, over the course of the season, we all expected him to win races, have lots of podiums, challenge as a title contender. But there's also been those blots on the copybook because the first six races, the first two rounds, he was so strong on the podium for every race. Did the winning in Hareth as well. Looked really good through there. But then when we went to Portimao, Aragon for the double headers, Catalonia, four rounds where I think we would have expected him to have done a little bit more than he did. And, you know, it, it left the feeling coming into the Magni Core weekends that there's still a fair bit of work to be done for Ducati, there's still a fair bit of work to be done for Scott to be able to be that bit more consistent across everything. And that's where I think it was probably important to be able to have a wet weather weekend because then we're able to see, okay, Scott was able to win a race in the wet, they were able to learn their way through the weekend. Chaz Davis was being pretty much the same as well. He was able to get a podium in race two. It shows that they're getting their head around the Ducati a lot more. So maybe into year three, that's when they can actually be a much more consistent force. Yes, and I think that's the, the only thing that's missing there is consistency. Um, the interesting thing about this year is that both the factory riders have said, give me the bike underneath me to let me win and I can go and win. And Scott's been saying that. Chaz has been saying that for a year and more. And when you gave him a bike that he was happy with, his style was happy with, he won a race. Um, having had some pretty dark times in the last year and a half on the V4. But Scott's saying exactly the same in a different way and a very different riding style and everything else has been saying the same thing. When he's got a bike under him that can win, he is at least challenging to win and, and actually doing more winning than anybody else except Jonathan. So what does that indicate to you? I think that just means they have to get the bike more consistent, the package, race to race, track to track, they have to make the bike consistent, one spec for Chaz or whoever the other rider's going to be, uh, and one for Scott. 
Um, and it has to work every round. That's why Kawasaki and Jonathan are winning stuff uh, with such relative ease because everybody else's challenge falls apart or doesn't match what they expected. So I think looking at that evidence and listening to what the riders say, maybe the biggest thing is Ducati have to find a way of giving their riders a bike in every round to suit their individual style and they'll be a much more potent threat. Do you think, Gordo, as well, has this weekend and Catalonia just shown that Chaz Davis in particular just has that little bit more class that Ducati need? He's a much more refined package than Rinaldi and that he deserves to keep his factory seat next year. Uh, I think either choice would be a good one for Ducati for completely different reasons. I think Rinaldi's a step into the future. Yes, he's Italian. That does and doesn't matter to Ducati. It matters less to them than some other people. Um, Chaz is a much more rounded package, obviously. Gives much more experienced package, obviously. When he gets the bike working the way he wants, he can challenge. Is is Chaz a potential world champion? He's as close as we've got in this uh, class, except for Batista. And then that didn't work out. Um, if Ducati are looking to have a rider to beat Jonathan and beat Ducati over a season, maybe they need to go and take a top five Grand Prix rider and bring him to this paddock. But in terms of who would you choose for Ronaldo or Davies, I think Ducati have actually got a good choice because it doesn't matter which of those they choose. They've got a proven winning rider this year in Ronaldo who's on the up and still young and learning. Um, and they've got a vastly experienced rider who really does understand how the bike works. He's got a particular style. Um and has to some degree been vindicated in what he's been saying for a year and a half. And every time he does get a bike that he's happy with, he can still run at the front and still win. It's not like, he's, you know, he hasn't proven that he can't win anymore. He can win completely. What Ducati need next year, I think, is to maybe expand their factory squad to three, even if there's a different colour on the fairing, and have three people beating Jonathan. That's maybe the way to help one rider to beat Jonathan is to have two other guys that can put themselves between their lead rider and Jonathan. If I was a, a, a working strategy for Ducati, that's what I would be trying to do. Maybe one rider on his own, it's, it's quite difficult. But ganging up on them three riders is maybe the way forward. And, and therefore, they have three factory bikes next year. So they have Chaz and Rinaldi, but one of them might be on another team. Yeah, we've seen them in the past with Rinaldi run on the Aruba Junior team and it was pretty much in that kind of circumstance. He was running on the same sort of bike as the factory riders at that stage on the Veach win. Obviously, now he's on the Go 11 Ducati, lots of support from Ducati. But uh, yeah, maybe that is the option for them. I definitely think that Ducati would be well served keeping all three riders for next year, put them all on a private contract and basically say you got one year, showed that you need to be on that factory bike for the 2022 season and then see how it plays out because as it stands right now if Chaz Davis is able to find form and over the course of the last three rounds himself and Scott Redding have had pretty much identical results if he's able to find form you certainly wouldn't want to bet against Chaz so I'd be interested to see what's going to happen with Ducati obviously Chaz has been talking to other teams as well he's been talking to Yamaha he's been talking to a few others to see what's what around the paddock but certainly for me the best option for everyone right now would be just to stay with Ducati and like you said Gordo the big challenge for everyone is to try and beat Jonathan over the course of a full season because as it is right now Kawasaki and Johnny Ray they may not have the best bike underneath them any given weekend but over the course of a full eight round championship or you know a longer season next year you're still betting on Kawasaki being able to figure out how to make that bike work at its best the more often than anyone else and that's really what's been the hallmark of Johnny's season this year. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the racing, winning races is one thing. Winning championships is quite another thing. And Kawasaki, Jonathan, the bike have all proven that they've got enough to do it. But performance-wise, the bike is now uh, when someone else gets their their other bikes working properly. When that new Honda starts working properly, is now simply outperformed in terms of its top end and, and everything else. They are now changing the setup, keeping the setup the same as much as they can, but they're having to modify things more track to track to try and keep the right performance. Um, but with a rider like Jonathan on it, they can do that. They can make 
an adjustment and Jonathan can adjust himself to it completely. He can change mid-race better than any rider that he, you've really seen. His natural style is very smooth. He's not got one particular style. If he has to lean off more, as we saw in Aragon, he can do that. If he ha- But he likes to sit up and just be like a, a foggy style, fast cornering. But if you need him to use the back end more than the front, he'll do that as well. It, it's a very formidable package and they have got all the tools in the box to do what they need. But it's been shown that it can, Johnny can be beaten. It's just consistency. We'll, we'll, we just have to keep using that word, unfortunately. That's what's been missing from any other rider's challenge is consistency. Because lots of other people have shown they've got the speed to beat him. Ronaldi on a privateer Ducati can, can beat Jonathan. Um, you know, so the package is beatable, but not over a season. And that is, again, if I was a strategy planner for one of the other teams, I would be working out how you get your rider to finish the best he can every single race and not have good and bad races. Just eradicate that from the company psychology. Yeah, I was sitting down with Jonathan and with Pereira this weekend just to have a chat about what they saw as their biggest strengths. And uh, certainly for Ray, he was talking in terms of just what he's seen from other riders across this season. He was saying that for him, he expected a little bit more from Scott Redding. He expected Ducati to be a little bit stronger. But for Pereira, the big thing was he just always gives Jonathan the bike that he feels he needs to be able to do a good job with. And he doesn't look at trying to work what they've always done in the past it's just what works today he's got that mentality of trying to make sure you can maximize everything any given weekend and that's certainly been what's made the biggest difference for them you'd have to say because that kawasaki we've seen it through the course of this season it hasn't been the bike it used to be where it was everywhere you went it was either the best bike on the grid or the second best bike and it was able to get podiums and good results pretty easily now in world sbk it's a very different situation because it's much more competitive and i think that that's probably taking kawasaki a little bit by surprise and to see just how competitive it is you only have to look at yamaha as well like this weekend we saw loris baz have two podiums gordo yeah and strong podiums second places um okay home round okay wet weather but the second one for loris was the most impressive he was actually surprised that he got there because as he said he likes full wet the more wet, the better. Um, so that, that kind of semi-dry, uh, not really wet second race, final race of the weekend, he was surprised he got to where he did. Um, he had to manage the rear tyre because as soon as you get, when you use a full wet and you get anything less than full wet, you should really be on an intermediate. But obviously you can't change tyres uh, while you're out there. So you have to manage it. And Jonathan reckoned that it was the heat inside his back tyre that made him have to reduce his pace to get at home whilst while trying to desperately trying to stay in third position. Baz had exactly the same problem, but he had it later in the race and he was already in second position, uh, having done a lot of work early in the race to get there. And he also went for a slightly different option um, than the other guys, and maybe that helped him. But he had also uh, internal heat of the tyre quite high and having to manage... Um, in that second race but it shows what he can do um, he said he, he's very pleased with his season etc we've seen some great performances we've also seen a few crashes and some to me not not great performances as a final result um, but if they can do that in a semi-regular basis and not have up down up down results well I mean anything's possible and it shows what privateers can do in this championship now what they always could do but now, because of the regulations and because one team's going a slightly different way, doing things their way, they can take a bike that other people are winning on and win themselves. And they have got technical differences between their bike and the, the other Yamahas, um, which is great to see. This is what World Superbike always used to be able to do. Uh, privateers could have their day. Well, Loris has had a few this year. And what better place to do it than at home, cheering up the miserably wet French fans no end having him on the podium yeah it was good to see a few fans in attendance this weekend and certainly it was good to see Tenkade this year make that step forward obviously we still got another round in Estoril but they've had four podiums they've been able to really vindicate their decision 
to switch to Yamaha. Baz has been able to look really strong. Obviously, we're still waiting for news on next season for Yamaha, but it'd be a surprise if Baz doesn't stay at Tenkadi at this stage. They've got a really good working relationship. He's working well with Mick Shanley as crew chief. As you said, Gordo, they're developing the bike in a different path. And maybe with these kind of results, that just gives them that little bit more support for next season. Yes, they need to They need to support the people that are doing well and they need to support in a different way the people that aren't doing quite so well. Um, but when you look across that Yamaha family, if you like, you've got to say there's been ups and downs for all of them. But, you know, all of those people are competitive. I w- if I was Baz, I would stay at Tinkart because the factory bike uh, maybe is two riders away from him, given Yamaha's current problem. Maybe there's two other names that are a better bet for that, um, for lots of reasons. But Baz would certainly deserve it if he got it, without question. And Tinkata certainly would deserve even more support, given their performances. I think as a rider and a team, they both deserve more than they've got now. But what they've got now has been proven to be podium-capable. Um, but yes, they, they've made a great case for themselves, um, for the future with Yamaha and, and look at what they've done already. And it's great to see they're a classic name. They're a, a proper world superbike in with the bricks, world super sport and superbike team. And everybody was really distraught when they left, had to leave the paddock. And now they're back and they're not back in numbers. They're back in performance. It's just great to see. Yeah, it's been perfect because obviously Tenkat has always been, like you said, go to a, a famous team in the paddock. And whenever the news came out that they were going to have to withdraw, it really was something that put a dampener on on everyone. But when the news came out that they were coming back, it was probably even better for everyone. And when we heard then that it was going to be with the Yamaha, when we heard then that they were going to go their own path, it really was a case of Tenkat getting back into the tuning game, going back to their roots and trying something a bit different. And Gordo, you mentioned there are two riders ahead of Loris Baz potentially for the factory seat. Obviously, we've seen Andrea Locatelli dominate in Supersport, but who's the other name that you're thinking of? What we hear is uh, Gerloff, because obviously he's shown a podium ability. He's American. Um, he's part of their junior setup directly. The Tenkata team is a kind of side chain to the, the current Yamaha philosophy of the factory team and then the GRT team as a junior team. It would be a straighter link and more of a Yamaha company kind of straight line promotion. Um, that, that is what we understand, but it, I don't think any of them are out of it and they've all got to agree. Um, but that to me is the, what we heard. And again, it's that time of speaking. Who knows? They've maybe made the decision now, but we were expecting decisions this weekend past and we never got them. So there's still question marks. Um, so anything is still possible. But to me, Yamaha might be thinking that there's two people ahead of Loris, uh, partly because of the success they're having with Tinkata. Why disrupt that? You know, that's it's also leaving a bit of stability in one of their satellite teams. And as a future customer, good advert for Yamaha in general, that's uh, maybe someone you don't want to mess with. So there's lot, there's positive and negative reasons to to bring Loris over. Yeah, and certainly, like what I was told in MagniCore was a decision was going to be made probably in MagniCore and then announced in the run-up to Estoril. But I've still been hearing an awful lot about Cameron Bobier and Yamaha USA trying to figure out how to get him to World Superbikes. He apparently wants to come now. Yes. But uh, certainly, as it stands right now, no team is actually all that interested in having them until he proves that he wants to be there. And that's probably the biggest stumbling block. And that's what's going to be quite interesting to see exactly what happens for him going forward. But I think certainly if you're Yamaha, you've got pretty much an embarrassment of riches for who you are able to put on that bike. You mentioned Garrett Gerloff there as well, Gordo. I think it would be very remiss not to mention <laughs> Gerloff yes. from uh, this podcast. Obviously, he was one of the the big hot topics all the way through the weekend, really. His performance on Saturday, let, let's get the good bits out of the way because the good bits were really strong from he showed why he could be a factory rider in world sbk he was able to run with the race leaders in race one his first time racing in those kind of conditions not an awful lot of experience on the pirelli tire in those conditions and he was willing to probably push a bit harder than most in those early stages of the race but he looked like he had a real chance of being able to fight for the race win before his crash this was coming on the back of catalonia another really important step for him Absolutely. Um, 
it would be very easy for that all that adrenaline and all that positivity of Catalonia to how often have we seen in the past that either has a good result and then the next round he doesn't. Um, it was very good to see him uh, being as fast and as potent as he was, even in completely different conditions that a track he'd never been at, etc., etc. It was, yes, again, very impressive. And what do you need to be a successful motorbike racer? Well, the first thing you need is to be fast enough. And I think he's shown us more than once now that he is fast enough. That Of that, there is no question. He's not having to find a level in his riding to match those guys for pace. It's other things that might need some polishing, as I'm sure we're about to move on to. Yeah, and I think it's uh, definitely one of those things where there's positives and negatives for Gerloff through the course of the rookie season. But over those two rounds, we've seen him have an awful lot more confidence that comes from being able to get to the front. But I think this weekend was one of those chances where, again, he's under pressure. He's trying to figure out if he can get a factory seat next year. He's got the chance to impress. He's got the chance to really rubber stamp and move on to one of the best teams and best bikes on the grid. And on Saturday, we just saw probably a little bit too much aggression from the race one crash. For me, it's one of those crashes that, you know, doesn't warrant penalties, but warrants discussion that warrants being given a rap on the knuckles. And certainly whenever I was talking to other riders, they were very much of the opinion, not even the BMW riders, this was riders up and down the grid, they were all very much of the opinion that race direction needed to step in and do something because they felt that in a wet race, in these kind of conditions, it was a bit of inexperience, it was a bit of naivety to expect that other riders would concede a position because as it was off the start line, you're not racing in isolation. You're always racing with people around you. And if you're down that inside line for turn one, Gordo, you're not anywhere near the ideal line. The BMWs are on the racing line. So they're going to be able to carry more speed through the corners than you. They're going to come across you. And it seemed that it was one of those incidents where it could have been avoided. And the blame has pretty much rightly gone on Gerloff's shoulders for it. But did you think it warranted a penalty? Or would you be like me where it warranted discussion that warrants being told that that sort of thing can't happen going forward? I think in terms of severity of uh, decision, it's three out of ten. He took an opportunistic line in the inside. I think a more experienced rider at this level, at that track, how many times have we seen incidents at that first corner? Um, yeah, I, I, to me, the whole thing would not have happened if he hadn't gone, changed, changed from his, his mid grid position and shot over to the left hand side apexed earlier and therefore he's going to have to come out even if he didn't come out at that point but I think we're looking at I wouldn't have punished them as such I think that was a bit fierce I think if the consequence of that uh, ended up both BMWs first and second on the grid remember both out in the same incident the consequence was a lot heavier than uh, the transgression but I think most other riders would not fight. All the other riders probably wouldn't have went for a gap for that supposed gap because if you take the corner early, you hit the apex earlier. You can't suddenly find another 10 or 15 degrees of bank angle. I've heard every opinion from people, fans, photographers, other journalists. I've obviously seen all this stuff in social. I've spoke to a lot of riders about it. And yeah, I think every one of them would have not done what Gerloff did. Um, but you know it, it's the heat of the moment it's everything else but we also saw Gerloff running off and then coming back on the track and getting another message from another, from uh, Rinaldi because I don't think he from what I was told he didn't really look back before he came back on he's beginning to get a little bit of a reputation um, and that's not a good thing to do when you're a, a rider trying to make your way in the championship um, pe penalise him I think that would have been difficult uh, because it wasn't something to me crazy reckless but it was a misjudgment he doesn't think so and maybe somebody really does need to sit him down and go well this is why it's not that you did something crazy but you did something that no rider at this level would have done because of the conditions because of the uh, you know the fact that you're going left everybody else is going left those riders can't suddenly change line and when they pour in rain yeah what I found what I found interesting with it was I found it very similar to 
talking to BSB writers about what's been going on through the course of this season, especially at the start of the year, whenever you look at like Andy Irwin and the penalties that he was getting. Because in isolation, most of Irwin's instants are just where he's not really doing all that much wrong. Could be some of them where he's had a bit of spatial awareness issues. And I think it was a bit like that with Gerloff, where you're so yeah. focused on what you want to happen yeah, exactly. that you don't realise what else can happen. Yes. And, you know, yes, yes, for, yes. for me, this one with Garrett is just one of those instances. And I don't think it's anything particularly bad in terms of, you know, the cause and the effect are very different things in that accident. Yes. It looked an awful lot worse because you take out two teammates, you take out first and second on the grid. But this was one of those ones where I think if this happens in the dry, you don't think anything of it. In the wet conditions, when everyone has very different reactions to what's going on on the bike, you don't have as much grip. It's then a very different set of circumstances. It's a 21-lap race. It's a very long race. And you're trying to win the race at Turn 1. You're trying to follow Johnny Ray through into Turn 1. And for me, it was one of those instances where you're looking at it where if you come up through a world championship where you've got 15, 16 riders, all very competitive, all very fast, all very confident in what they're doing... Mm -hmm you're very aware that all of those guys can do exactly what you can do. Whereas I think whenever you come through the Moto America system, the same as when you come through BSB as well, there's not that same depth of field. So suddenly there might be only in BSB five or six riders. If you're coming through to be at that world championship level, there might only be five or six guys that have that same potential to be able to do what you feel you can do. If you're coming through Moto America, it's even less. So suddenly, whenever you're in a big field like this, filled with some of the most talented riders in the world, everyone's able to try a move like that. Everyone's able to try and do something to get to the front. But they also all know that they have to ride with that respect for their competitors, that something can happen, that you've got to try and find that absolute limit. Because if you step over the limit, that's whenever you have a crash. If you're under the limit, that's whenever you're found like a sitting duck. So it's a really tough balance as a rookie to find. And I think that this was one of those instances where, you know, Garrett made a mistake. I think it would have been better off if he had have immediately held up his hands and admitted that. Because from what I gather from talking to the other riders, it was still a case of he firmly believes that he didn't do anything wrong, which is... A rider's prerogative, most of them do tend to take that view. But I also think whenever you're a rookie in the championship, whenever you've only been at the front for one race, I think it's it's a very different set of circumstances. And that's what's going to be interesting to see what happens with Gerloff going forward. Because I thought in the Super Bowl race, there was a few times where we might have seen a little bit of mob justice from the other riders where they weren't given an inch and they were trying to make a point as well. Yeah, if it doesn't get policed by the authorities or by the rider, it will get policed by the other riders. That, we've seen that before. Um, we can see how it's quite possible um, that other riders gang up on uh, one particular rider, uh, whether it's to let another one win the championship or whatever. But I think basically what we're looking at with Gerloff is awareness. He was ta- he kept talking about himself and his line, and I was on my line, and I was bes- you know I didn't see anyone else, etc. Well, okay, but you know <laughs> you're not raised in isolation. So I think that the the issue is awareness. Um, and maybe experience, as you say. Uh, I wouldn't like to say that, the, you know, I'm sure the, the starts in BSB and everywhere else are pretty hectic, etc. But as I say, I think it's awareness. I think it's experience. Um, and you have to understand that other people are there. And when you're going left, everybody else has got to go left. They're going to be joining you. It really affects that corner, which was a little bit further along than the one that, that Gerloff ended up on. But it's a split-second thing. As I say, I don't think it was any recklessness or whatever involved. I think it was just a lack of awareness um, and too much opportunism. Um, but I really don't want to make... I think, as I say, the consequence of it is why we're still talking about it. Um, but, yeah, I think calming down is obviously what he needs to do just a little while keeping that competitive edge. And learning, he's learned a lot this year. Maybe this is another thing that needs to go another 1% in, in that little storage um, that all the million things a rider has to think about. Um, for his own good, for his own good. You know, it would, what, what, what difference would it have made to his end result? Um, he ended up falling off anyway. But what difference would it have made to, to his final race result? We've seen how he can pass people and how confident he is at the moment. 
one place or two places going out of that left and into the next right, what difference would that have made in a wet 21 lap race? None. So, you know, it's, uh, I think he maybe learned a lesson even though he still thinks he's right. Yeah, I think it's worth always looking at it that in a wet race, you don't tend to win a race at turn one, you only tend to lose a race at turn one. And yeah. this is one of those times where I think Gerloff probably felt really good out there, felt that he had a real chance and probably just was a little bit too G'd up for it. And I think, like you said, Gordo, it's very much worth remembering. He is a rookie in World Superbikes. Obviously, he's got a couple of years Superbike experience in the US, but it's been good to see what he's been able to do this year. He's made steps forward. He's been a good impact on the paddock in terms of the interest that we're getting from the US. He's exactly what you want. And he's come over. He's put in the hard work that everyone puts in on the grid. And, you know, he definitely warrants his place out there. Now it's a case of trying to just make those steps, learn those lessons and see what happens for him next season. But uh, certainly I think he's been able to come in and do exactly what we needed an American to do. But, um, I wanted to ask you now about uh, another rider that was making headlines for the wrong reasons at times in Magnicor. Alvaro Bautista. He was absolutely nowhere all the way through the weekend in the wet conditions. We saw this as well last year where he really struggled to be able to get the Ducati to work in the wet. We saw in the Grand Prix paddock that he wasn't uh, really renowned as a wet weather runner. I wanted to ask you one question, Gordo, about this because Bautista is one of the smallest riders on the grid. He's super light he's tiny on the bike when you compare him to Loris Baz obviously it's probably about as distinct a change as he can make a lot heavier for Baz a lot taller for Baz but Baz is able to put an awful lot more load through the tires in these kind of conditions he's able to use his weight a lot better for Bautista with these Pirelli tires we've seen some other light riders in the past struggle is this something that comes down to the rider or is this something that uh, is down to the bikes and the and the tyres for him? Um, I think the weight thing, I would always still choose to be smaller and lighter. I think you, all you would then do is adjust your settings to compensate in the wet, to put the same relative force through the tyre. You know, um, okay, you can only go so low in tyre pressures and uh, nowadays, and quite rightly so, but there are things you can do to allow the tyre to push more into the ground. Um does it help being heavier? Well, yeah, but then you start overheating the tyres quicker when it starts to dry out. So if you follow that as just one trailer logic, you end up with bad shouldn't have been second in the second race. Um, I just think the bike is on such an edge that uh, we've seen that already when he had that huge high side at Catalonia. It was all looking good. And that Honda... We saw it with Leon as well this weekend with his big high side in race one. And there's, I wanted to move on to that eventually, yeah. Because when Leon had that crash, and obviously we watched him jousting with uh, Top Rack, and when he... And we've seen him going into that corner so many times. When he did that, when he went into that corner, I just thought instantly, as soon as he started the manoeuvre and went towards the corner, I thought, he's going to crash. He's too fast. Now, was it him that just went in way too fast? Because to me, even visibly on TV, it was just a too quick an entry. Or was he being pushed in by the bike? Uh, you know, was there something that wasn't the same? Uh, I, would, I didn't actually get the chance to speak to Leon. I'd like to, because demonstrably on TV, that was a too quick an entry, and it did end up in a big front end high side. Um, so I just think the Honda's on a knife edge. Uh, they haven't got their full set up proper. If they did, if they had all their chassis and everything set up, they would be getting more consistent, better results than they are now. Uh, they, everybody I speak to, and it's quite obvious looking at the bike, the potential of that bike is gigantic from every aspect you look at. Uh, whether or not they've done all the sums properly with the chassis is still a lot of subject to debate, but that bike is on a knife edge in terms of setup, and in weight, I think it just exacerbates it. So Batista's weight... Loris's weight, yeah, okay, maybe there is an advantage in fully wet conditions, but I think you, in any circumstance, in any aspect of racing, you still want a light bike and light rider. Just looking at the Honda Gordo, because when you talk to the riders about it, obviously there are flaws with the bike, but one thing that is good with it is that it turns on a sixpence. And obviously we've seen with Bautista's crashes, with Haslam's crashes as well, it probably actually turns too well because we've seen that with just how loose it can be whenever they're right on that limit. But 
in the wet conditions, I thought Haslam actually looked really, really decent at times through the course of this weekend. He was battling with top rack all the way through the weekend. And I think he could easily have come away with a pretty strong weekend all in all, where he could have been fighting it out for, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth places, which I think would have been pretty decent for, you know, that team, that rider in these kind of conditions, still trying to get an understanding of the bike. It does show as you said, just how much potential there is in the Honda. And certainly if you're a rider trying to chase that second seat, obviously Haslam still looking for his future to be confirmed. But if you're a rider chasing that second seat beside Bautista, certainly something that you'd be right up at the top of your list. Yes. Um, the bike is definitely not ready as a, as a finished polished race package. And maybe the, the the bike is too nervous in general, which is why it turns so quickly. You should, in theory, be able to geometry that out. Um, can I can I interrupt you, Gordo? Yes. Yeah, because one of the things we did hear, Gordo, was that Honda did look to try and change things like their swing arm from pretty much one of their first tests. And then obviously you're not allowed to do that in the regulations. So they saw right from the start that there was some sort of an inherent flaw with the geometry of the bike but obviously the regulations for world superbikes are that you have to maintain an awful lot that's similar to your road going bike yes and the there are limits on what you can do on these bikes now uh, again quite rightly so so that you're not you know we are supposed to be racing what what they buy you can you and me can buy in the street then modified um there is also the big problem for Honda is that they're not only doing this bike for World Superbike, which uses Pirellis, but they're doing it for the 8-hour, which uses different tyres. Um, tyres play such a big role, and if you knew you were going to use one particular brand of tyre, that brand of tyre's got a design philosophy that you follow because it affects everything else in the chassis, from harmonics to uh, how much of the tyre is used, the suspension and the final analysis. Uh, there's a million different aspects. When Pirelli came in all those years ago, one of the manufacturer's representatives said to me, the biggest thing about this is that we now have to start changing our plans for five years from now. They were going to literally have to change certain things on the bikes if they knew they were going to be using Pirellis at the top level of racing. Um, so they're trying to do two things. So maybe on other tyres that bike works a bit better already. And, and that's what they found in testing. Um, but... It does, remember Honda's been out of Superbike for a long time. They've been running in GPs and they've been making, they've been running basically the same Fireblade for a long time. But they getting back into the full factory business. Um, yeah, they, 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 I think if they had to do this bike again, if they had this winter again, they would do it differently. I mean, everybody would, but they do actually seem to have some problems as such. And uh, can they fix them? I don't know. It's all remember. It's also been a bizarre, crazy year. I'm, I'm sorry, Gordo. I I can't let that pass. I cannot let that pass. What? All I heard there was Bob the Builder. Can we fix it in a Scottish accent? Really? All I got from that whenever you said, "Can they fix it?" Yes, they can. <laughs> Did that? Sorry. Right. Okay. Let's say. Uh, oh well. I'll, I'll take that back then. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I wasn't aware of that thing. Yeah, Bob the Builder. Yeah, of course, Bob the Builder. Yes. Sorry. Um, I have to say though Gordo just um, from what we've seen all the way through this season there's so many reasons to be positive for everyone in World SBK because we've had I think it's seven different winners ten different riders on the podium we've had so many other riders battling to get onto the podium we had uh, obviously very difficult qualifying conditions but we had a BMW 1-2 they've got a brand new bike coming out next year there's so much to think right now we're in a proper golden era of superbike racing and you've obviously been in the championship for a long time but i wanted to ask you about how this compares to the so-called golden eras of superbikes in the past because for me watching as a fan in the 90s obviously it was unbelievable you had big characters you had foggy keely Corsair, slide all guys that just captured the imagination but we didn't, in my view, have the same sort of depth of field where front to back, you've got great riders battling it out just to score points. Like, where do you see this era stacking up in terms of that kind of hierarchy? Um, it's it's absolutely open championship now. And that's why you're seeing more people arriving there. The good thing about that is that you're having to beat the best there's ever been in terms of statistics and Jonathan and Kawasaki 
if you can if you can beat him even in one race, you've done something really significant. That's like beating Fogarty on factory Ducati with factory tyres in the nineties. You've done something significant there, um, and a few people have done it. Uh, the proof of the pudding is that the rules have made it more even for everybody that a privateer can take a bike and, and compete for wins and, and podiums. Um, there are a lot, but when you look through the field, look at the experience of those riders, look at the the past record of those riders, um, and look at how it's bringing other riders on. We're in a great period of Superbike. It's always been good. Uh, every season you've looked at a, a decent field. Um, the, the thing you've got to remember about the golden eras of, of World Superbike, a lot of times if you weren't running uh, one of the two top factory bikes, or two top bikes from each manufacturer, on factory tyres, what we look back at wistfully as these golden eras, sometimes the top two were 25 seconds ahead of the guy in third or fourth place. When you look back at the Grand Prix time and all those amazing era of the, the, the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, when you had all these, uh, you know, six of the best riders ever all competing against each other, sometimes they beat each other by 20 seconds. So we're having much more openness than some supposedly golden eras, and those were great eras. Um, but the year of Bayless versus um, versus Edwards was basically Bayless versus Edwards and not much else going on. You know, a lot of people trying and some people doing the occasional win here and there, but we have got a solid cadre of very good riders. Um, MotoGP sucks up a lot of talent nowadays, even more than it did in the past. Um, because of all the, the streams that you've got to get there, talent cups and so on. Um, but considering that we are, you know, we're not, we're not producing that many new riders from inside and not bringing that many new riders from outside, even the ones that are coming in are showing that they've got what it takes. And to beat Jonathan is a formidable task. Chaz was asked about this at the weekend, you know, uh, you're racing against the best ever rider that's been in World Superbike. Obviously, he chose not to go on about Johnny too much, but ultimately, um, it, the thing I find remarkable is not just how much the championship has improved, how much the grid's improved, but you look at the the fifth Yamaha, for example, someone we've spoken about already. The fifth Yamaha is ultimately Loris Baz, who has won races in World Superbike as a factory Kawasaki rider before he went away to MotoGP. So, this is a level we're operating at. Um, and it's great to see, in my opinion, this is one of the best eras ever in World Superbike. What World Superbike doesn't have now that it used to have is so much attention focused on it and media attention and so on. In the past, it, you know, it was, it rivaled MotoGP in some ways, in some underneath MotoGP ways for attention. It doesn't seem to do that anymore, but it's certainly getting a lot more attention now because people can see how good the racing is and, uh, how difficult it is to win here now. Yeah, and I think that I definitely agree with that, Gordo. I think that when you look at just how tough it is, good examples are the likes of what you see from Top Rack or Van der Mark or Lowe's or any of those kind of riders that when the bike's working well for them, they're able to win races. When it's not working well, they're having to really dig in yeah. to try and just uh, have a good result. And they're not actually that far off the win, whereas three or four years ago, if they were finishing, you know, six, seven seconds off the win, they're finishing on the podium. Now you're trying to battle it out for, you know, being able to finish sixth or seventh. And, and I think that's what's great right now. I think when you look at, you know, all the riders in the top, probably the top 14, 15 spots, it just shows how good it is. And that's where I'm quite excited for next season now that we've got confirmation that Lucas Myers is going to be moving up as well. Myers is going to replace Xavi Fares on the Pichetti Kawasaki. And yeah, I wouldn't expect him to come in and be able to challenge for podiums or anything like that because it's going to be so competitive. But Myers has shown on a super sport bike, on an endurance bike, just how good a rider he can be. And now he's finally going to get a chance on a super bike. And, and I think from what we see from Lucas, he really does his best to maximize everything that he can do now. And uh, that's what's going to be interesting to see what he does whenever he jumps onto a super bike. Yeah, it's just his very nature. His, his seriously competitive nature uh, is his biggest asset. He's obviously got a lot of riding talent. All the riders have got a lot of riding talent when they get to that level. It's what you do with it. Um, and he is just not happy unless he's winning. 
Uh, and when he jumped from a Yamaha to the Kawasaki, which is obviously an older design of motorcycle, he thought it was going to be impossible. And he's ended up, he's won three races on that across two seasons in an era when everybody says it's, it's like a Yamaha Cup. That's a measure of how Mahia says. Now, it's in super sport, not in super bike. So he's not just jumped up, he's jumped into this fierce 15 really strong riders uh, championship and not every super sport rider that goes up to Superbike has ever made it. Um, it I think a lot depends on how much support he gets, how much help he gets, how good the bike is um, but I don't see any reason why he can't have individual strong results and he's another guy in the wet isn't he? He's another guy with a lot of wet weather credentials so anything's possible for him in the, in the right conditions even from the beginning um, but there's no guarantees and that's the thing we need to look at with that it could go either way uh, there's absolutely no guarantees when a rider goes from super sport to super bike however good he is in super sport yeah you can't take anything for granted and uh, certainly we can't take anything for granted on the paddock pass podcast because we're heading in towards the final round of the season which means the final guaranteed show with el gordo through the course of the winter but uh, certainly the goal is going to be to make sure that we still have some superbike content all the way through the winter and gordo it's been uh, fun catching up after magni core and uh, obviously you're further up in france than i am i'm back down in uh, barcelona for another couple of weeks before estoril but uh, what's the plan between now and the final round of the year for you uh, I'm going to take my bike to uh, Holland, leave it there. I'm going to fly to Estoril. I have to stop the bike trip just for lots of reasons, but I'm going to fly down to Estoril, fly back to Holland and then go home. Uh, and the end of, uh, towards the end of October, I'll be going home. Uh, so yeah, I've been on a big road trip, going to all the races, uh, keep myself safe. And it's been a blast. It's been, it's, it's been a great season, even though it's been very compact. Um, and if we hopefully get a more full season next year, uh, going to start a bit later probably. Um, but if it's anything like as intense as this year and hopefully more competitiveness, then I'm going to be looking forward to that. That's what's going to keep me warm on the bike later today when I have to ride five hours in the rain. Well, five hours in the rain, Gordo. And I'll tell you what, like France just seems to have been hit by it all the way through. We saw we saw what happened at Magnicor. We're waiting to see what happens in Le Mans. Obviously, all the way down in the south of France, it's been very hard. So hopefully, it's a good, safe trip for you up towards where you're going. But uh, I think that the one thing for for all of us is it's uh, it's just nice to be in that uh, final straight. Now we get to go to Estoril, the new circuit for a lot of the World Superbike paddock. And uh, I'm excited to go there. I think it's going to be an interesting one. And uh, certainly, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens in uh, MotoGP this weekend as well in France with them having to struggle through the wet conditions so a big thank you for joining us as usual Gordo. Absolute pleasure and a big thank you to everyone for listening to this show just worth remembering as well we've got a Patreon special where myself and Gordo sat down to chat about Scott Redding's season and then uh, I sat down with Redding just to talk about how he's assessed his campaign so 15-20 minutes with Scott Redding and that's available at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast so for as little as $3 a month you're able to listen to interviews like that special content that we're going to try and push out on patreon over the course of the winter as well so go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast to listen to that and then obviously this weekend with the magnet with the uh, le mans grand prix if you tweet at paddock pass pod we'll make sure to get your questions answered with uh, david and neil in the wrap-up show from le mans so from myself steve english from gordon ritchie a big thank you for listening to this week's show and enjoy the racing this weekend in le mans Uh, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie taking you through what we saw in France for round... God, I have no idea what round it was, Gordo. Round seven. Let's go again. Sorry, Brian.